0: Thank you. Very interesting passage, I'm sure you'll agree. Let's pray that God will help us to learn something from it. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'll help us to see how the story described here impacts us, our words, our thoughts and our actions today. And we ask this in your son's powerful name. Amen. I wonder whether the following rings any bells for you. (coughs) I get knocked down, but I get up again. You are never going to keep me down. I get knocked down, but I get up again. You are never going to keep me down. I I could keep repeating that over and over again. Does anyone know the name of the song? the, The Chumbawamba is the band who sung it. The song's actually called Tub Thumping, for what it's worth. But it's a very famous song, particularly because of that lyric. Uh, sound bites of that lyric are very often used and you hear it time and time again. I particularly associate it with ads for Rugby League, I think from the late 1990s, where they'd have players being tackled and getting up and playing the ball and getting tackled again. I get knocked down, but I get up again, you were never going to keep me down, etc. It's quite a nice pumping song. Now the guitarist of the band once explained what the song was about. And apparently, he said, it was about the resilience of ordinary people. I think he was particularly thinking about the ordinary people he knew in the north of England with a particular pub in mind, which I think apparently inspired it. But people in the north of England who got knocked down, but they just kept getting up again and they kept on going. Resilience. Now, the resilience is the capacity to keep going when we take life's hits. And it's something which is very helpful in life. And it's something which is particularly helpful for the Christian life as well. As we engage in Christian ministry and in Christian mission, we are going to take hits. And what we need to do when we get knocked down is to get back up again and keep going. And this is something which Paul and Barnabas illustrate really well in their ministry and particularly here in chapter 14. Now I could major this morning on how and why Paul and Barnabas kept going when they were knocked down and I will make a few comments about that but what I really want to focus on this morning is the fact that they did stick at their mission, that their ministry, that they did get back up when they got knocked down and they kept going. Now we've heard part of the story of their second mission, or their first missionary journey or Paul's first missionary journey just read. And I, I love stories and I'm not alone. We in the West and right around the world today, we really love stories. We are influenced by stories. They in fact shape how we see ourselves and how we see the world. Uh, we find that stories of our country, stories of our culture, stories of our family, stories of our own experiences shape who we are and how we see things. And my hope is that as Christians, if we're Christians here today, that the story of Paul and Barnabas, the true story in Paul and Barnabas, will be something by which we will want to take on board ourselves and make part of our story, particularly as it relates to resilience, getting back up when we've been knocked down. Now this morning we're continuing our series in the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. I'm really excited to be going through this book. And we're up to chapter 14. Uh, hopefully you received an outline when you came in. It's also on the screen behind me. Firstly, I want to think about evangelistic mission in verses 1 to 7. Then cross-cultural mission in verses 8 to 20. And then follow-up mission in verses 21 to 28. And I'm going to give you a head up, heads up on the big idea. It's simply maintain mission. Maintain mission. Well, let's start with our first heading, evangelistic mission focusing on verses 1 to 7. Now, last week, if you were here, you'll recall that Paul and Barnabas had been doing mission in a place called Pisidian Antioch. Here, this week, they've travelled to the town of Iconium and they're serving there. Now, Iconium was a commercial and a regional centre in what is modern-day Turkey. And here, as they go about their mission there, they do it in a remarkably similar way to the way they went about their mission in Pisidian Antioch. You see, in both Pisidian, Antioch and Iconium, they start in the synagogues. They eventually reach both Jews and Gentiles. In both situations, it leads to belief, people becoming believers. Verse 1 of chapter 14 says they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. What a thrill that must have been. And both missions also attract opposition. Look at verse 2. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Now, this sort of opposition doesn't appear to be simple disagreement. I mean, we might talk about what we believe to someone today and they'll say, look, I don't agree with you. I hold a different view for these reasons. You know, you can believe that, but I believe this. It wasn't that sort of civilised disagreement. The disagreement, it says they refused to believe. They stirred people up and they poisoned people's minds. The opposition to the message here doesn't appear to be reasoned. It's certainly not tolerant and it's negatively divisive. It's quite unappealing really, isn't it? Two thoughts. Firstly, we don't want to be like that ourselves. We will often find ourselves disagreeing with others on important matters, you know, spiritual issues, particularly the gospel, but where we disagree with others, we don't want to be unreasoned, we don't want to be intolerant, we don't want to be aggressive. We're divisive, we want to be reasoned, tolerant and kind when we disagree with others. Secondly, though, we need to be ready for when, even if we're like that, we may on occasion face unreasoned, intolerant and aggressive opposition. That was certainly Paul's and Barnabas's regular experience and here it's fairly extreme. Verse 5 tells us that the people wanted to stone them. I've never got to that point with anyone, not where they've literally looked to do it. So for Paul and Barnabas, as is the case with millions of Christians today in over 60 countries, they faced persecution. And in their particular instance, it was life-threatening persecution. Yet, And here's the interesting thing, despite this opposition, they show remarkable persistence with their mission. They maintain their mission. Now remember, before they got to Iconium, they'd already been expelled from the region of Pisidian Antioch. Here in Iconium, they get opposition. It appears to be fairly aggressive. People refuse to believe, they poison people's minds. So what do they do? Verse three, look at it, first word. So, so, Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord. Did you notice the word so? Immediately after the description of this fairly aggressive opposition, it says, so they stayed there longer, you know, speaking about the Lord. It seems to be that not only are they being resilient in the face of opposition, but apparently, it seems, the opposition perhaps is encouraging them to stay longer there. Now, why would opposition perhaps encourage them to stay longer? Are they masochists? I don't think so. My guess is, is because they realise, wow, there is pretty strong opposition to the Christian message here. There's this new little church which has just been formed. They're going to find it pretty tough. We're going to do what we can to help consolidate and support them there in this antagonistic environment. So they stay there uh, and spend considerable time. Eventually, when there's the plot to stone them, it's then that they move on and go to a place called Lystra where, you guessed it, they continued to preach the gospel. Now, I didn't want to major on this, but I mean, how do they keep going? Why, Why do they do it? Very briefly, just a few quick thoughts. They're Christians. Their lives have been changed by the gospel. They've got the Holy Spirit who's helping them. Secondly, they're part of God's plan. God's plan can't be stopped. They're part of that bigger picture. Thirdly, I guess they would have the example of Jesus and his resilience as inspiration. Fourthly, they've been prayed for by their home church in Syrian Antioch before they went off. Look at the start of uh, Acts chapter 13. And fifthly, they realise they've got a great message to convey. Verse 3 describes it as the message of his grace. Now, grace is, of course, undeserved goodness. They've got a message of of undeserved goodness for people, goodness which people can experience even if they don't deserve it. Now, what is that message? Well, it's the Gospel. It's a a very good example of which was explained to us last week in Acts chapter 13, where we have that extended presentation of Paul's speech uh, in Pisidian Antioch. It's a message of forgiveness of sins, justification, and also it's a message which leads to removal of guilt removal of shame, restoration of relationship with God, which in this life gives us access to power, peace, purpose and wisdom, and in the next life promises us eternal life. I mean that is a good message that you want to get to people, the message of grace. So, Paul and Barnabas move on to Lystra and here it seems that their mission is pretty cross-cultural, which brings us to our second point, cross-cultural mission in Acts 14 verses 8 to 20. Now, apparently Lystra was considered to be a fairly rustic, a fairly unlearned and somewhat unruly area. So perhaps it comes as no surprise that the way Paul goes about his mission there is quite different, apparently, to the way they went about it in Pisidian Antioch. There's no mention, for example, of starting off in a synagogue. There may not even have been a synagogue there for all we know. And then there's the extraordinary response we read about to one of Paul's actions. So on one occasion, as Paul Paul preaches, he heals a man. Verse 8 tells us the man was lame, had been that way from birth, and had never walked. Now, health or lack of health was a dominant issue in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, there was low life expectancy. There was high infant mortality. Uh, Epidemics frequently swept through the empire. It was a major problem, and so Paul sees an example of someone who was not very well off, and he says to him in verse ten, "Stand up on your feet." At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, this will be ringing bells for you because back in Acts chapter three, the apostle Peter does something very similar in acts chapter 3 peter heals a lame man at the gate at the temple gates this attracts a crowd and peter gives an evangelistic talk here paul similarly heals someone attracts a crowd but what then happens is quite different to what happened with peter in acts 3 and it seems that paul's first challenge here is misunderstanding Look at verses 11 to 13 with me if you can. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Laconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. I mean, what a shock that must have been. There you are wanting to point people to Jesus and suddenly they're wanting to sacrifice bulls to you. I mean, who saw that coming? Now, why did this happen? Well, it's because the audience that Paul had here in Lystra is quite different to the audience that Peter had in that similar scenario back in Acts chapter 3 in Jerusalem. See, in Acts 3 in Jerusalem, Peter had a Jewish audience who were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Their whole worldview would have been shaped by the Jewish scriptures. Here, in Lystra, Paul has a Gentile audience. they probably never even heard of the Jewish scriptures, or if they do, they don't know much about them. Their outlook would have been consistent with Greco-Roman thinking and Greco-Roman religions. And their response is actually quite understandable given the Greco-Roman worldview. You see, if you were an ancient Greco-Roman sort back in the first century, your culture would have told you that the gods occasionally visit earth. They do these visitations and hang out with normal people and do various things. So you wouldn't have been surprised if perhaps it happened occasionally. And there's one particular account of a visitation by the gods who apparently had visited that particular area around Lystra and this mythical account uh, is described by the Latin poet Ovid who describes a visit by the gods Jupiter and Mercury to that area. Now if you know your ancient mythology the Roman gods Jupiter and Mercury the Greek equivalents are Zeus and Hermes the two gods referred to here. Now apparently these two gods visited the area around Lystra sometime earlier they had been welcomed by an elderly couple who were greatly blessed for welcoming the gods. And those people who didn't welcome the gods um, had their houses destroyed by the gods. Okay, so that's there in the back of your mind. You see Paul heal this guy. You think, oh, visitation from the gods. If they knew that story from Ovid, oh, remember what happened there? If we make them welcome, we get blessed. If we don't make them welcome, we're in big trouble. So in the light of that, if they knew those stories, thinking, well, why don't we sacrifice in their honour? Seems quite a logical thing to do, doesn't it? If that's, your, if that's your worldview. You see, often, Christian words and actions can be misunderstood in cross-cultural contexts. A story I seem to recall hearing years ago was of a, of a missionary. Let's say he was in Papua New Guinea or somewhere like that. And as I recall the story this missionary would catch a speedboat up various rivers to visit various tribes to do ministry. In his mind, that was quick, it was efficient, it probably enabled him to maximise time with the tribes or visit more tribes in the same amount of time. But apparently, the way it was perceived by the local tribes was quite different. They thought, boy, this guy's really weak. He can't paddle his own canoe. He has to get someone, you know, this motor to do it for him. So what the missionary thought was efficient, apparently the tribes people thought was weakness because of their different worldview. Now, we would know that any missionary who now works cross-culturally has to put effort into trying to understand the culture to which they're going. But similarly, I think in our own culture, which changes every few generations and in which there are many subcultures which we come across, I think we would do well for the sake of Communication generally, let alone gospel communication, to try and understand as well as we can the way people think today in Australia, the way different age groups think, the way different subcultures think. Uh, I try to do that because my thinking was heavily shaped by the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But that's now 20 and 30 years ago, and I think you know the culture has shifted a bit. And so I'm trying to work to sort of keep myself in contact with the way people think today, particularly younger people, because most of you are still. You grew up roughly the same time as me. So, important to try and understand cross-cultural communication. Now, we don't know whether Paul knew about that story described by Ovid or not. Anyway, when he sees what's going on and he tries to correct the situation and he gives a fairly desperate speech, it sounds, in verses 15 to 17. And by the way, this is Paul's first accounted speech to a Gentile audience in Acts. He, apparently, he actually shows great understanding of both the Bible in this speech and of his audience. Let me explain. I'll ask you first, let me read it for you. Here's a speech from verses 15 to 17. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. In the past, he let all nations go their own way yet he's not left himself without testimony. He's shown kindness to you by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. Now there's his speech. Now if you compare that to the earlier speech he gives in Pisidian Antioch, which is a much longer one, you'll see in Pisidian Antioch, when speaking in the Jewish synagogue, it's full of Old Testament quotes. There are no Old Testament quotes here. Yet while he doesn't quote the Old Testament, and you can understand why you mightn't to a Gentile audience, everything he says is consistent with what the Old Testament teaches. Let me briefly explain. He refers to false religions as these worthless things in verse 15. That's entirely consistent with the Old Testament's teaching about false religions. He refers to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in verse 15. That's entirely consistent with Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? He asserts that God has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season, in verse 17, which accords with Psalm 145, which was our first reading. So everything he's saying is consistent with biblical teaching. But here is a really illuminating point, which you may not have known. Many of the things he says would also have been agreed with by many from a Greco-Roman cultural background because many of the things he says, for example, that the living God made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it, and that he provides rains, crops, food, and joy, etc., is consistent with one of the main philosophical schools which was around in the first century. In the first century, there were these guys called Stoics who promoted the Stoic philosophy. It was very, very influential. And Stoic philosophers would have agreed with all of that about God making the heavens of the earth and providing rains and crops, etc., etc. So when Paul says this, a lot of his audience would have thought, well, yeah, that's right, isn't it? God is like that. So it's a very clever speech. Everything he says is scripturally consistent, but much of it is also stuff which his peers would have wanted to agree with. Now today when we're trying to communicate with anyone, um, particularly about the Christian gospel or any Christian issue for that matter, it can be really helpful to highlight what we all agree with, you know, and then we can have greater understanding of the other person, they understand us better, we can say all those things we agree on and it allows us, I guess, to identify, well, actually, where are the points of disagreement and we can have a more sensible discussion about that. It's good to find that common ground, which is what Paul seems to be doing here. However, while Paul finds this common ground, he doesn't, Change or compromise the gospel message because he actually says something even in these three verses which really was at odds with Greco-Roman thinking. What part was that? Well, it's in verse 15 where he urges them to turn from their religions to the living God. He's asking for this sort of change. Now, in the ancient world, just say so we we're all living in the first century and we came across the Christian message and we thought, oh, this, this Christian God sounds pretty good, what you would instinctively do in the ancient world would be to incorporate that into your existing worldview. So you might be worshipping the emperor, you might be worshipping some of the Greek gods, this Jesus sounds pretty good as well, we might worship him too. You try and incorporate him into your whole group of gods who you'd worship and support. But Paul's saying, no, you can't do that. You've got to get, put those things away and take on the one true living God. And that's the part of what he says which um, could have caused real, I guess, concern. Now, some of you might think, oh, Paul and Barnabas are just a bit uptight, aren't they? Why can't they just incorporate Christianity with their other gods as well? Well, it's because there are some things in, in life which do require exclusive commitment. So, for example, if you get married... It's good to be exclusively committed to your spouse, isn't it? Rather than sort of think, oh, I might just incorporate other relationships with these other really nice people as well into this, you know, of an inappropriate nature. You know, um, some sort of, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Unhelpful. Another example. Say you go to the doctor and you get prescribed some medicine for a serious illness that you have. The best thing to do is to take that medicine. Rather than think... Oh, this medicine's pretty good. Gee, I've got some really good pills in my medicine cabinet up there. I like the names of some of those. I might take this pill and some of those as well and wash it down with a glass of red wine. Put them all together. What a great idea. No, what a rotten idea, isn't it? You know, uh, there are some things in life, marriages, medicine, our relationship with God, which actually require exclusive devotion. And so this is something rather which Paul insists on describing here. The take-home message is, if we're trying to explain the gospel to someone in a cross-cultural context, we want to find common ground, find what we can agree upon, try and express it in a way which they will actually understand rather than misunderstand. But while while we do that, it's not for us to change the gospel message or to admit those aspects which may be unpalatable to the other person. We need to give them the full saving message. We're not doing them any favours if we don't. So, there we have it. Now... We then see Paul and Barnabas's second challenge. First one was misunderstanding. Then we have committed opposition yet again. Verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Of course, he wasn't. Now, this is pretty committed opposition. Not only are they prepared to kill the guy, but some people have travelled from as far as um, Pisidian Antioch To oppose him, now that's a distance of approximately 150 kilometres. And this isn't in a car, they're on foot or on donkey or whatever. They are concerned enough to try and stamp out their message. They're prepared to travel 150 kilometres to try and stop it. Now you've really got to want to oppose something to do that. But can I say we see this a lot today. There are governments, often communist governments, sometimes Islamic governments, who go to great efforts to specifically try and stamp out Christianity. We may be committed in trying to spread the message, there are some people who are committed in trying to stop the message. But it's not just overseas, because there are many people who are specifically trying to oppose Christianity in the West. And at this point, Some of you are probably thinking, oh, he's going to mention Richard Dawkins now, isn't he? This is who he always mentions, or Christopher Hitchens, or one of these sorts of guys. I'm not. I'm not going to mention them at all. I'm going to mention Philip Pullman. Does anyone know who Philip Pullman is? Oh, we've got one nod. Okay, he's quite a famous fantasy writer. He wrote a series of uh, novels called His Dark Materials, the first book of which was The Golden Compass. They changed The Golden Compass into a movie, which, I mean, I've seen it with my kids, Many of you may have seen it as well. He's a pretty popular uh, fantasy fiction writer. Now, apparently, according to the esteemed source of Wikipedia, um, here are some quotes of what Pullman has apparently said. My books are about killing God. And also, I'm trying to undermine the basis of Christian belief. He's trying to do the exact opposite of what C.S. Lewis did. Now, can I say, he has every right to do that it's a free country right he's just putting forward his beliefs which oppose ours the point is that there are people who are specifically trying to attack and put down christianity so why is it worth fighting the fight here well verses 17 and 19 highlight that our message is one of good news as i highlighted earlier and it actually refers to god as a kind god in those verses what a great thing to be able to be in a relationship with a kind God. Well, finally and far more briefly, in our final section, Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel in Derby. They go from Iconium to Derby, and there they engage in follow-up mission in verses 21 to 28. So when finishing in Derby, after that, they then head home to Syrian Antioch. But they don't go home via the shortest direct route. If you look at the map behind me. If they went from one blue arrow to the other blue arrow, that would be how you get from Derby home to Syrian Antioch. Not that far. But they didn't take that route. They went home via the red arrows, which you can see is a much longer route home. In fact, it's roughly three times as long. It required effort to take that route. They went that via Lystra, Iconian, Pisidian Antioch, etc. Now, why did they do that? Well, because they were following up on the churches they just planted. They weren't just concerned about planting churches, they were concerned with consolidating churches. They weren't just concerned with evangelism, they were concerned with discipleship. They went there, verse 22 tells us, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them. Verse 23, appointing elders in each church. They care about discipleship, they're concerned about setting up structures for the church, appointing leaders and the like, Uh, things which of course churches like ours still try to do today. And then finally, in the last two verses of this chapter, they report back to their home church in Syrian Antioch. You've worked out by now there were two Antiochs. There's Syrian Antioch, which is their home church, and there's Pisidian Antioch, which is one of the places they visited. Anyway, they're back home in Syrian Antioch, giving their final report, not unlike what Graham and Wendy Torman did here last week. They gave us their final report, didn't they, on their ministry in the Congo. And what a great report Paul and Barnabas had to give. So many people had come to faith, including Gentiles, which would have been really noteworthy. God has been working out his plan. So let me conclude. Amidst the various knots which Paul and Barnabas took, they got up again, didn't they? They kept going. They stuck at their mission. They maintained their mission. They were flexible in how they went about it, but they maintained their mission. So the big idea, uh, and the idea for me and for you, is that we want to, as we face the knocks of life, (laughs) maintain our mission, to make the story of Paul and Barnabas a story which informs how we live, to make it our story as well. Let's pray that God would help us in that venture. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray that uh, those of us who are believers would maintain our mission that we will be kind and thoughtful and flexible but that we would keep going in doing things which will bring contact people into contact with the good news of the gospel through our words through our actions through our prayers through what we give our money to we pray that we would maintain our focus here and we ask this in Jesus name